and left yourself in Make good on a promise Never heard again If you lost and loaded You're broken down Bring all of your trouble Come down, down Hey guys, and welcome to Kaisis a podcast about living our new life in the New Covenant Age. Our podcast name comes from two Greek words, kaine kitesis, which mean new creation. I'm your co-host, Osvaldo Valdez, and let me welcome Pastor Todd Bordeaux. Well, welcome back, everyone. It's good to start Matthew 5, beginning in... Uh, our passage that looks at the six antitheses of Matthew 5. And Osvaldo, have you been looking forward to this? Yeah, this is probably, in, in my opinion, whenever I read the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most hardest, personally, when I when I was kind of journeying through the book of Matthew. This is probably the most difficult passage for me to, to deal with. Yeah, it's funny. When I was in uh, RTS in Orlando, I was finishing my demon and I was going to start my dissertation. And so I knew what I wanted to do my dissertation on, which was these six antitheses in Matthew five. I had preached through them. I, there needed to be some, I think better exegesis that had been done normally because the people, like you said, people were confused and I was all ready to go. And then the instructor said, your dissertation has to solve a specific problem. Oof. <laughs> now, of course, yeah. I, I, in my own thinking, well, all good exegesis solves problems, <laughs> but uh, yeah. that wasn't going to fly. No. So then I picked the uh, divorce one, mm. which obviously solves problem understanding that correctly, which we'll get to in many weeks. But now, let's just begin with a review. Last week we looked at verse 17, that key verse where Jesus pauses in the sermon to correct a possible misunderstanding. Yeah. And that is the relation of his kingdom to the Old Testament law and promises. Because thus far, when he preached his first sermon, there was no mention of the law, no mention of Israel or the promises. So, so far, nothing. <laughs> no. And so the listeners would have been a little bit confused. And so he corrects that misunderstanding that he will fulfill the law and the prophets as sure as, you know, as he is coming again, the law and the prophets will be fulfilled. All the prophecies to Israel will be fulfilled through him and the purpose of the law will be fulfilled. And there will be commandments in the kingdom of heaven. And his kingdom is the promise to Israel. Yeah. And so he stops to correct that. He doesn't really explain it much, but he simply stops to correct it in case they were thinking this is completely unhinged from the Old Testament. So any thoughts on last week's study before we enter into our overview? Yeah. And just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying, I think like, you know, verses 17 serves as parameters of how we are to understand these antitheses, right? They they provide kind of barriers of how far we can go on explaining what the relationship of the law is to to the, to the new kingdom. If you want to say that Jesus is just is completely dismissing the law, Jesus in seventeen, right, is like putting a break on that. No, no, no. I don't come to abrogate the law. 
if you think that he is just trying to some, provide some sort of reformation to to the law, he's like, no, I come to fulfill it. So verse 17, right, becomes very key to understanding these antitheses because it provides us kind of the barriers of how far we can go in our understanding of these antitheses. Yes, and so he will explain how he fulfills the law. So what we're going to do this time is simply an overview of these six antitheses, and then each week we'll get into one at a time. So they each of them begin with something like, you have heard it said, and then a quote from, the Old Testament or a thought from the Old Testament. And then, but I say to you, and in these six, he deals with issues, the issues of anger, lust, divorce, honesty, revenge, and love for enemies. What these will look like in his kingdom. And he contrasts these ethics with the law of Moses. And so the law of Moses is, I say to you, excuse me, the law of Moses, you have heard it said, and then I say to you. Now, there are, throughout church history, uh, three interpretations of what is happening, and we will definitely take a distinct one of these three as the proper way to look at it. The first um, interpretation is what we'll call the idealist interpretation, and that is Jesus is describing what perfection looks like what true law-keeping is from the heart, the point being of the sermon is you cannot do it. And so Jesus is saying, if you think you can keep the law, here's the true meaning of the law. And so the result of the Sermon on the Mount is for you to come to the conclusion, I can't do any of these things, only Christ can, and therefore it's his righteousness that must be mine. So the only answer then is to believe. It's not that you can actually do these or follow these ethics. I'll give you a quote uh, from Jeremy, uh, excuse me, Jeffrey Gibbs, who is a Lutheran commentator. The sermon contains law, the commandments of God as Jesus declares them. Sooner or later, that law, when taken seriously by men and women trying to obey it, will rise up to condemn Jesus' disciples as guilty as sinful, and as poor in spirit. And so this understanding is all these things Jesus is saying, I say to you, he's showing what you cannot do because you're a sinner. Now the problem with the uh, that view, and, and of course theologically that's true, we cannot keep the law enough to be right with God, only Jesus can. But the problem with this interpretation of this passage is that Jesus is instructing his people how to live. When he says, I tell you not to make oaths, he is telling us how to live and he expects us to follow it. When he tells us to love our enemies, he's not saying, well, you can't really love your enemies. He's saying people in my kingdom will love their enemies. So these are real commands, real imperatives. And the assumption of the whole sermon is that his people will do these things. So any thought on this first interpretation, the idealist view? Yeah, you know, kind of it. One thing we should uh, note about the idealist view is that they limit the Sermon on the Mount to to just, you know, soteriology or particularly, you know, like, that the Sermon of the Mount had evangelistic purposes, 
And, you know, I guess a, a radical idealist would say, like, well, it, it only has um, relevance up to your conversion, right? And then it's it's really irrelevant from that point on. But, you know, one one thing that should kind of um, allows, uh, that should propel us to take a step back from from the idealist view would be, for example, James, James 5.12, when he, he almost quotes verbatim the words of Jesus about not swearing by heaven or yes. or earth or just, you know, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Like for someone, right, in, in, in James' community who's familiar with the gospel of Matthew, he hears those words and, and he's like, well, those are James' words. He doesn't say that. He would say, no, those are Jesus' words. And James is intentionally bringing to the forefront, right, of the, of the church, this is relevant for you today. So I would say that a passage like James 5.12 kind of would contradict the idealist view in saying, no, that the Sermon on the Mount is strictly for uh, evangelistic purposes, just to show you that you're just a big sinner and only Jesus can fulfill it. But from that point on, there's no true relevance. That's where I would disagree. Right. So the second interpretation is the most popular one, especially in reformed circles, and that's what we'll call the correction view. The correction view is that Jesus is correcting the misunderstandings of the Mosaic law that the Pharisees were teaching. And so Jesus is giving the, uh, the proper understanding of the Mosaic law, what it always meant, and therefore how it continues in its true meaning. And so I'll give you a quote from Calvin who taught the correction view. But nothing was farther from the design of Christ than to alter or innovate anything in the commandments of the law. There God has once fixed the rule of life, which he will never retract. But as the law had been corrupted by false expositions and turned to a profane meaning, Christ vindicates it against such corruptions and points out its true meaning from which the Jews had departed. And so he's not really dealing with the contrast between his teaching and the law. He's contrasting the law with the misunderstanding of the law. Now, there are a number of problems with the correction view. The first is Jesus does not quote misunderstandings of the law. He quotes the Mosaic law. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye. You have heard it said you shall swear oaths. You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. These are directly from the Mosaic law. So whatever he's contrasting, he's not contrasting a new perverted teaching of the Pharisees. He's contrasting the law, what, what he's bringing with the Old Testament law. Now, some people say, well, there's a possible exception, and that's the last one where Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. And, and people will say, well, in the Old Testament, Israel was not told to hate their enemies. But actually they were. In Deuteronomy 20, for example, Israel is told to have no mercy on the Canaanites, but to wipe them out completely. To have mercy was to love, to not have mercy was to hate. It's the hate we see expressed in the Psalms, where the psalmists say, I hate your enemies that hate you. That mindset is throughout the Psalms, and that was not a sinful mindset. 
for Israel. And so Jesus is even there quoting an Old Testament ethic, an ethic under Moses. Secondly, Jesus is not, as you said before, he's not simply confirming the Mosaic law, but he came to fulfill it, which means the Mosaic law pointed to a greater ethic. It's the laws, it's the ethics of the kingdom of heaven that Christ brings, which means the provisional law that governed Canaan is disappearing for a greater ethic that governs heaven, that governs our relationship with God in the new covenant where the types have disappeared. And so Jesus is not simply saying, I'm here to correct the Mosaic law so you can follow the Mosaic law. He is saying, I'm here to fulfill the law. And here is an example of how it's fulfilled. And he gives six examples. And then um, thirdly, people were astonished at his authority. If Jesus was simply giving an interpretation of the law, what he said was the correct interpretation, that was nothing new. That's what the rabbis always did. They were always offering interpretations, the proper interpretation of the law. And so for Jesus to do what the rabbis were already doing would not have astonished them. No. So why are they astonished? They're astonished because he's declaring the Mosaic law void. It's very clear where he said, no more oaths and vows. The book of Numbers deals very specifically with the need to take oaths and vows. Jesus says, and I say to you, do not take any more oaths and vows. He is declaring it void. He's changing the law. And that's what astonished them. No rabbi did that. And so the correction view, as popular as it is, really doesn't hold up under scrutiny. What are, what are some thoughts you have on the correction view? Yeah. You, one of my main issues with the correctionist view is that the, the mistake of the, of the Jewish people or Israel's mistake wasn't merely misinterpretation of the law. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, during this, this interval of time between Malachi um, and Matthew, right? That 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 the the interval between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, a lot of the literature that the Jewish people kind of produce is usually termed right Second Temple literature, and there were attempts to spiritualize the law in many ways to expand on 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 the laws like lust, right? Like do not commit adultery, and there were there were even exhortations against lust on the basis of that. So so Jesus isn't merely trying to draw out a spiritual concept, and that's it. He wasn't just trying to like, uh, like, like you said, correct com other competing views. I th like. I think what's, what what Jesus is communicating in in his antithesis more than anything is he's he's rebuking them not just for merely misinterpreting the law, but rather not understanding the law in light of the coming of the Messiah. Because look, we, we've been repeating this in, in the last few episodes that the law is prophetic, right? It was never an end in and of itself. And if, and I feel like the correction is view kind of contains the law, or takes away that prophetic element of the law. Meaning, like, no, the law is, is almost like an end in and of itself. And and no, I think Jesus is, is expanding on the Jewish understanding of the law, saying, no, the law was pointing pointing towards something better and greater, and now I'm bringing that something better and greater, and which is what the kingdom of God. And I think that the issue here, like once again, is not just a misinterpretation of the law. 
but almost the lack of biblical theology, that's the issue. The fact right. that they're not contextualizing um, the law in light of the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus is here kind of like giving his explanation as to how that's going to look like. And one of the reasons the reformers were adamant on this is that they were being criticized by the Roman Catholics for having no law. Uh, your view of mm. justification leaves people free to do whatever they want. Yeah. And so the reformers wanted to say the moral law continues for Christians. And then they use this passage. Well, it's true that, that we talked about last week, the moral law always continues. That's not what Jesus is pointing to here is simply what continues. He's pointing to what changes in his kingdom. Yeah. And that brings us to the third view, which I'm going to call the redemptive historical view. And that is that Christ is contrasting the ethics of the kingdom of heaven with the ethics of Old Testament Israel in Canaan. And I'm going to give you a few quotes, one from Donald Hagner, which I think he taught or still teaches at Fuller, but he wrote a commentary on Matthew and he writes, Jesus expects a newer and higher kind of righteousness that rests upon the presence of the eschatological kingdom he brings. Hmm. So what Jesus is explaining is a newer and higher kind of righteousness. Uh, Frank Thielman, we talked about his book last week. He's a PCA a professor in a seminary. He wrote, and he's speaking of these six antitheses. In each case, Jesus replaces a Mosaic command with instructions that express the ethical goal toward which the Mosaic law points. In cases where the Mosaic law in question is a pragmatic attempt to legislate a less than ideal situation, Jesus nullifies the command altogether by demanding a change in the situation itself so radical that if it takes place, the legislation becomes unnecessary. And so what Jesus is bringing in his kingdom, which is the age of the spirit, is so radical that we won't need these laws anymore, yeah. is the point. And then finally, George Ladd. Some of our listeners may be familiar with George Ladd. He is a, he's Baptist, if I remember, but not dispensational. If I remember, it really was George Ladd, Ladd that led me out of dispensationalism wow. way back like, 37 years ago. Wow. But he wrote, the Sermon on the Mount portrays the ideal of the person in whose life the reign of God is absolutely realized. This righteousness can be perfectly experienced only in the eschatological kingdom of God. Eschatological, looking ahead to that final kingdom when he returns. It can nevertheless, to a real degree, be attained in the present age insofar as the reign of God is actually experienced. Even as the kingdom has invaded the evil age to bring to people in advance a partial but real experience of the blessings of the eschatological kingdom, so is the righteousness of the kingdom attainable in part, if not in perfection, in the present order. In other words, it is true you will not be able to love your enemies perfectly like Christ did, you can in this age, by the power of the Spirit, love your enemies, even yeah. if it's a partial experience of those ethical blessings. 
of the ethical results of having Christ in you. And so you will never look at one another with the type of purity that Christ did. You don't have to live in lust. You can look at each other with purity in the new covenant, uh, et cetera, et cetera, as we look at the other ones. And so what Jesus is introducing is are the ethics that will govern the age of the spirit, the age of the kingdom he is bringing by his death and resurrection. And these ethics are better. Mm-hmm. They're higher than the ethics that governed the provisional law that governed Israel. Now, we're not saying that hatred to God was okay in the Old Testament. The point is that hatred was not legislated. You could be in the Old Testament kingdom of Israel and hate everyone and be perfectly fine as long as you didn't kill them. Because the law only governed murder. It didn't govern hatred. And so you could have this inward disposition of hatred, but you you could be a, a fine member of the kingdom of Israel. Would that apply in the kingdom of heaven that Christ brought? No. And so the ethics have changed. The way ethics are legislated, the, the way they're fulfilled. And we'll look at that each time. But any thought on how the redemptive historical view really opens up Matthew oh, yeah. 5? Oh yeah, I want to I want to kind of say a few a few things. And, and one is you know I, I mentioned about Second Temple literature, and out of this age, you know, between the the Old Testament and the and the New Testament, a lot of Jewish groups form, like you know Pharisees, Essenes, uh, the, the Sadducees, Zealots, a lot of these groups. And it's interesting, pa- uh, Pastor, because a lot of them, their attempt was you know, if we just interpret the law right. And if we just behave the right way, then not only will we, you know, restore Israel to its former glory, but, you know, this eschatological kingdom that was promised to us will come if we just change our behavior and um, conform in a more better way to the law. But it's interesting because the the Sermon of the Mount presents us something completely different, which is the kingdom of God has not come because you or I have changed our behavior because you or I have a better understanding of the law, but rather the kingdom of God has come in the person and ministry of Jesus. And because of that, we now change our way of living. It's interesting, kind of like the switch, you know, they all had these expectations and Jesus kind of flips it on its head. That's one thought. The second thought is that in the redemptive a historical view, you, you see like a harmony, right, between the idealist and the correctionist view, because we're not totally dismissing. There's good elements in each two, right. you know, like, for example, when it comes to the idealist view, um, the redemptive historical view would say, well, yeah, the Sermon of the Mount takes the law more serious insofar that it, it, it brings forth that which the law was pointing to, right? It brings a greater ethic, a greater righteousness, but it's it, it, the redemptive historical view will put the brakes in saying, um, well, but it, it's not impossible, right? It, it's not something that's strictly limited to condemn you and to point you to Christ. It's something that's realized in your life, at least partially, by the work of God's Spirit in you, transforming you and bringing you to newness of life. And when it comes to the correctionist view, the, the, the historical redemptive view would say that the Sermon of the Mount, to an extent, does correct misunderstandings of the law. Insofar that a lot of people understood the law um, 
outside of Jesus and his ministry. And Jesus here is like, no, 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 understand and view the law in light of my own person, ministry, and kingdom. That's how you're supposed to understand the law, that I am bringing, um, I am fulfilling, bringing to completion that which the law only pointed to. That is being realized in my kingdom. Right, and we'll talk about how much that is centered on his sacrifice on the cross. Yes. Of being Christ-like. Yeah, and, and, and like we, we mentioned on the last episode, always when we're reading, especially Matthew, you know, we are supposed to look at the Sermon on the Mount in light of the, the whole narrative. Because Matthew is, you know, propelling us towards Christ's death and resurrection. Yes. Well, one more thought before we uh, close the uh, overview, and that is the use of hyperbole. The contrast between the ethics that governed Old Testament Israel and the ethics of Christ's kingdom are so stark and radical that Christ uses hyperbole to express the differences. So it's really important to see hyperbole being used here and how. Hyperbole is a figure of speech, I'm going to quote from the dictionary, a figure of speech consisting in an exaggerated or extravagant statement used to express strong feeling or produce a strong impression and not intended to be understood literally. And so Jesus talks about cutting off your hand, cutting out your eye in the new covenant. Now, obviously, we understand that as hyperbole. <laughs> And so, so I, I laugh, Pastor, because there were some uh, medieval monks that took that very seriously. <laughs> yeah, there were a few. That's yeah. crazy, huh? Yeah. Uh, you think of, do not take any vows at all. Now, he's this is hyperbole. It's in comparison to something. It doesn't mean you can never, uh, you know, go to court and testify, or you know, you because you take vows, you you take marriage vows. Um, you take church membership vows. Uh, you, if you join the military, you take vows. He's not saying all vows are sinful. Now, the Mennonites, especially when they started, took this literally. And so they actually taught that because of this passage, the taking of all vows are sinful. And they were not seeing the hyperbole throughout all six of these. Even the first one we'll look at next week. Do not go to worship until you're reconciled with your brother. Hmm. And, and I've known some people to take that literally. Well, I shouldn't come to church because there's a certain person that has something against me. And they're not seeing hyperbole. Now, Craig Keener wrote, calling something a hyperbole, of course, is not an excuse to ignore what it says. The exaggeration is used precisely to force us to grapple with the radicalness of what it says, hmm. to shake us into changing the way we live. But it does warn us not to read everything literally as if we're reading a report by some scholar or journalist. Hmm. Now, we're really going to see this in the divorce antithesis, which is what I wrote my dissertation, which is now, I think most people know, a book, where they fail to see that this hyperbole continues even in the divorce antithesis. So we'll stop there. And next week, we'll look at murder and anger in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God, and what Jesus says about it. But any closing thoughts in our overview today? No, yeah, I just want to kind of remind our listeners that like, I think kind of having that framework, like, you know, we're doing biblical theology, right? 
an idealist perspective or a, a correctionist or even a redemptive historical perspective, this, that's biblical theology, right? The framework by which we approach the New Testament text. And I hope like like that kind of helps our audience understand why biblical theology matters because it could really rad- radically um, change uh, how you understand passages like the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, good point. All right, well, we will start into it next week as we get into that passage. Thanks for joining us. I hope this was helpful. Oh, you rich and high above all of those and wind I love all oh, you burning broken down all of your troubles come lay them down come lay them down Come lay down, come lay down.